Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. It's an interesting thing to think about, which is uh, what is old when it comes to a company. Uh, because I, I think often when people talk about incumbents and traditional organizations, uh, we sort of have in this mind like, you know, General Electric or Ford Motor Company, something has been around for 50 or 100 years. But I mean, 20 years is old too, right? I think any time you're in a situation where you've undergone um, or there around you has been significant technology transformation, then any systems you have that were built at different points along that timeline can be old in comparison. Right. So the way I look at it is if I was to build that same you know, system or capabilities today, would I build it the same way? If the answer is no, <laughs> then your systems are legacy. Okay. And I think this is, I mean, maybe it will be less true in the future, though probably not, but certainly in the last 10 and maybe even five years where the cloud and hybrid cloud is, has become you know, more of a real thing for enterprise, I think there's a lot of companies who have legacy systems, even ones that are considered disruptors. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I completely agree. <laughs> well, hopefully our entire chat isn't uh, complete agreement. <laughs> I'm, sitting <laughs> I'm sure having, it won't be. <laughs> I'm sitting having a cup of coffee with uh, Christine Day, who is the CIO of Quest Trade, uh, one of Canada's, if not one of the, the region's most fascinating uh, fintech companies. Thank you, thank uh, you. It's good. You know, I realize we, we actually... We met quite a few years ago at a, at a Gartner event, I think. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and uh, we were talking about this before, but I, I remember the, the, the dialogue back then was that uh, CIOs need to be running scared. Um, and Because if, if they weren't the ones to lead digital transformation, there was going to be some sexy new job title of chief innovation or chief transformation officer that was going to come and eat their lunch. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite uh, entertaining. I don't think that's still the case. I mean, what, what do you think we've now discovered a, a number of years on about digital transformation? Yeah. The, the CIO is still really very much in the driving seat. Right? Yeah. And I think that that recognition um, is certainly there with Gartner and the research shows it. The research shows that you know, CEOs are turning to CIOs to help lead the organization through this transformation and also be highly participant in uh, the creation of new digital models for the business. But I think, you know, the reason for that is, you know, C CIOs, they understand the business. The CIOs are, um, you know, they've, they've been there, they've helped to, to lead the teams that have created the systems. They understand the, the cultural dynamic of the organization. And because digital transformation is as much, if not more, a cultural change as it is a technology change, um, having that whole foundational background becomes critical to to actually um, doing what Gartner now calls uh, crossing the digital divide. Right. What are the cultural issues that you've you've noticed even at Quest Trade when you've been trying to think about transforming yourself in the last few years? Yeah, there's a lot of of uh, you know skills development that needs to take place, but fundamentally, it's also different ways of working. Right. So a lot of organizations you know, they talk about uh, an agile transformation as an example, and they may um, internalize the processes and they may do the stand-ups and follow the, you know, the components of Scrum, but they're not really um, adopting the mindset. Right. And so, you know, it's that um, blurring of the lines, you know, the idea of 
T-shaped skills instead of I-shaped sh I skills being uh, where individuals are the expert as opposed to being um, you know, more broadly skilled in different areas. Uh, a lot of the traditional boundaries among skill sets, you know, what is operations, what is infrastructure hosting, what is engineering, that all blurs. Um, and, uh, and that's a big shift for people. It can be an, an identity. From a um, pragmatic element. standpoint, is that, is that what you had to do? Did you change the, the design of the organization? We did. We've changed it a few times. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's an adaptation and, and it is a journey. Um, you know, we, we follow uh, what is largely recognized as, as kind of a Spotify model where we have uh, what we call chapters, which is uh, functional leadership and best practices across different skill sets while at the same time being organized into different agile teams that are multidisciplinary. Um, and that evolution moves far beyond IT because it gets into the organization of the business. Right. You know, how, what is the role of the product owner within an agile team vis-a-vis -vis product management um, in an organization? Even how the budgeting, you know, gets done and uh, what is the expectation, let's say, of executive leadership for um, definitive plans in advance of starting a project or definitive budgets um, around what you know what a capability will cost. I've seen some other organizations like ING Bank that, that have embraced this and you know they've got chapters and tribes and yep. squads. Yep. Lots. You guys have done the same. Right? Um, we have we don't have squads we have uh, the teams we have chapters and we do have tribes. What made ING Bank interesting was it wasn't just in IT, it was actually in marketing and in yes. sales and in finance and that uh, they're kind of pushed into all of the group functions. Yeah, I wouldn't say we've got full coverage in, in QTG, but we definitely have seen other areas of the organization adapting and it might be different flavors, you know, some are doing um, more Kanban style approaches. One really interesting development that's working very well is taking some of the concepts of, of cross-functional and um, deploying that into sales. Right. So as an example, our sales uh, group is structured into small teams and they have a variety of different people with different uh, specializations within that sales function who are co-located, who are working in these, these um, agile type teams but without kind of some of the scrum concepts that apply more to, to uh, engineering, as an example. What impact is this having on the way um, people view work and even their job titles and their compensation? Uh, because uh, I think when you look at this just from programmers organizing their time, it, it sort of makes sense. But when you start to get into more traditional roles and people have got expectations around salary and status. Yeah, it actually does get complicated, uh, I don't, and we haven't fully solved for it. And to my knowledge, um, I don't, I'm not aware of too many organizations that have fully solved for it because, you know, when you start to move away from I-shaped um, skill sets where you're kind of moving up, let's say, an engineering ladder of seniority um, to, you know, building out adjacent T-shaped skills, you know, how you go about recognizing um, and incentivizing T-shaped versus I-shaped is, is quite different. And uh, so, you know, I would say for us, we're still largely compensating around whatever is the primary skill set. But I would say on the bonus side of things is where there's more opportunity to recognize uh, that T-shaped development. Can, can you unpack a little bit about the difference between T-shaped and I-shaped? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so I-shaped, what it means is I am an expert. So I'm an expert at 
you know, developing in this particular language. And I don't, I'm not interested in, in testing. I don't have quality assurance capabilities. I, um, I wouldn't know how to, let's say, add automated tests into an automated framework, et cetera, et cetera. That's I-shaped. And essentially what that means in the engineering world is you are throwing things over the fence. So, you know, traditionally it would flow down that kind of waterfall path where the designers pass the designs to the engineers, the engineers write some code, they package it up, they throw it over the fence, <laughs> the testers, you know, test it, they find bugs, they throw the bugs back over the fence, right. um, and on and on it goes. And then, you know, engineering throws it over the fence into production, right? So when I talk about the blurring of the lines, it's, it's a blurring of the skill sets, it's a blurring of the roles. And you're ultimately trying to eliminate those handoffs. And by eliminating those handoffs, you're reducing the friction, you're expediting the time to market, but you're also building what we call T-shaped skills. And so what T-shaped means is, instead of an engineer being just an engineer and thinking their only job is to write code, they may have an adjacent specialization in security, they may have an adjacent uh, specialization in testing, they would prioritize their role in the team and the objective of meeting the team goals over their own, you know, kind of uh, individual area specialization. Right. So if that means that, you know, they would uh, take on, let's say in a particular sprint, um, more testing type of activities and so forth, that would be part of their T-shaped. And what it means to a business is flexibility, right? right? Uh, you you know you don't need to be as concerned as you would have been in past days about the balancing of the skill sets, and you know you would you and you would be able to kind of have a little more fluidity, a little more flexibility in in delivering what the business actually expects. To really make this work, do you think we're going to end up with essentially algorithmic talent platforms that sort of know people's T-shaped skills or abilities or compatibilities and then assign them dynamically to agile squads? They actually, such things are starting to come into existence. So I have heard of organizations that are building a different flavor of talent management platform. They're much larger than Questrade, mind you. Um, But essentially what they're trying to do is track the interests, track the capabilities, have a measurable view of those capabilities, in part because, you know, tech people are the new rock stars. Right, and yeah. you got to keep these these talented people happy because everybody else is after the same talent, and it is highly, highly competitive, which is business risk as well. Mm-hmm. If there is, you know, money to be spent and you can't find the talent to fulfill it, you know, that's an opportunity lost. So, part of the strategy behind these talent management platforms is not just about putting the pieces of the puzzle together from a skill set perspective, but it's actually about how do you track, you know, the unique um, interests and capabilities of an individual such that you can have much more profound professional development pathing and uh, yeah, espe- yeah especially when you know if we're going to walk away from the traditional career path and org chart to something more fluid it creates a high level of complexity keeping track it of does individuals. absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and uh, you know you want to be able to cater to those interests and, and nurture those interests so that you can create a fantastic employee, employee so, experience. So, so you know I'm just trying to get my mind around what you know, one of these 21st century organizations will look like given the context of automation. So you've got the humans now being managed in more uh, purposeful, meaningful, agile squads, doing interesting work, being moved regularly between projects and challenges. Where does automation fit into this? Like, like what, what is the work that people should do versus, you know, what machines should be tasked with? 
Right. That's a really good, it's a really interesting question. So, you know, generally with uh, when it comes to automation, um, you're you're automating the things that you know the steps. Right. You they're under, definable. You under, yeah, they're definable and, and they are, um, you know, repeating. Um, you know, Questory did some some experimentation with RPA as an example, and, and we determined it's not really for us, and really? to a large degree. And I'll explain why. RPA is perfect when you have large numbers of people performing a small number of tasks on systems that don't change. <laughs> okay, Questrade like has, like an insurance company. Yes, <laughs> Questrade has you know relatively small numbers of people performing a very wide range of tasks on systems that change all the time. Right. Right. In so there's a I think there's something to be considered about depth. And by depth I mean where is it appropriate to have a surface level solution and I consider RPA to be a surface level solution versus something that is deeper in the stack that is just, you know, actual automation or bulk processing capability within the system itself. Right. Right. So so this it wasn't appropriate for us. For some organizations, I know it's the go to place. But those conditions need to be there um, in yeah. order for it to to make sense. What, what does deep stack automation then look like for, for someone like you guys? So we've been doing automation at Questrade almost since the beginning. Uh, Any time there was the opportunity for you know us to expedite the processing of something by introducing what we used to call as bulk processing, and this was, you know, in advance of there being much discussion of, of automation, uh, we would build that in. So uh, generally it means that um, you're processing business logic, right? You're, you're taking in certain inputs and then you're applying intelligence to it, you're applying business logic to it, and you are, um, you know, trying to process something in a, uh, in a bulk sense as opposed to an, a task by task. Mm. And the financial services industry is largely task by task. Um, doing the same thing over and over and over again. And usually the way, the reason it's designed this way is because there is a need for human interaction. Uh, there's a decision to be made at, at, in, in order to advance that task. The way we would approach this over the years is we would create these um, views that would pool all of the decisions uh, together that could be done where, you know, if 90% of them are the same, you could glance over them all, you could approve them all, right. deal with the exceptions, and then click enter. Well, what's an example so, of a decision that, that could be grouped? An um, example would be, let's say you're processing um, withdrawals. Right. Okay, so you've got, over the course of, you know, uh, a particular period of time, you've got all of your different clients that are entering different transactions that can all be put together. The agent can review it all on a singular screen. So we have always counted the clicks. Internally, we count the clicks. Externally, what we does count, that mean, the clicks. count the clicks. How many different clicks does someone have to, you know, interact with a screen or a function in order to complete the process? So we've always counted the clicks and tried to reduce them. Um, our ideal is to get down to one, right? And so in this case, with withdrawals. They would get uh, accumulated. We would have a view that would uh, provide them all together. The human would look through, apply judgment, click, and then all of the bulk processing would happen in the back end. So all of that automation that needed to be done to process all of those requests would right. happen in the back end. So, so this, is a, this is really an example of, um, you know, to make this, as you say, deep stack automation work, you need to apply some creativity around 
essentially making to optimizing the the decisions into a, into a, a more manageable form. That's right. Right, That's because right. if you use RPA, you, you're just essentially automating your inefficiency. Yeah, and it can be the best solution in some cases. Yeah, to, um, to, to get a very quick win. Yeah, but if it is possible to to deal with the process inefficiency at its source, mm. uh, and if you have the control over those systems and, and you can make those changes, uh, it, it, it can be much more effective. Well, when you think, though, about the next stage of your digital transformation, uh, this human being applying judgment, say, to withdrawals, isn't that a classic opportunity to use machine learning? I mean, there are some kinds of judgment uh, around things that are true outliers, but there are yeah. other sorts of judgment that are kind of routine judgment calls, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. And we uh, we do have experience um, with, with deep learning. We've got deep learning in production. Right. Uh, we're one of the few financial firms that uh, that I'm aware of that does. Um, well, what, what, do you, what, what will you be using it for? <laughs> surprisingly, we actually applied it to uh, one of the most uh, complex areas of the business. So as a direct access brokerage, we have a risk function. And that risk function oversees you know, the allocation of capital in the markets, right? So it's kind of the like centralized... For, for, for individual investors, like margin calls or...? Yeah, so it is the accumulative view at the firm level of the trading activity of all of our clients. Right. Right. So what does a concentration look like? You know, what's happening in the markets from a volatility perspective? How many clients are at significant capital risk? And so it's individualized and it is entity-wide. Right. And we have, um, you know, what the regulators tell us already in advance of AI, the most sophisticated risk management capability of any firm they've seen. And are they comfortable with the level of automation? Uh, they actually haven't seen this part, but in advance, <laughs> in advance of that, um, you know, just with the general, just you know, decision-based algorithms, they were were very, uh, very impressed. Um, so what we actually did was, because we are direct access, and because we have a segment of our customer base who are very, very hyperactive traders, um, the times when the markets are at their most volatile is also the, oper- the greatest time of opportunity yes. for a, a hyperactive trader. And because of our you know, super low fee model, we can't staff our, you know, our risk team for those peaks. And when the markets are, are very volatile, those are generally also the same periods where there's the greatest risk, where you know, it's more likely that, that there may need to be human eyes up until the AI on you know, how risky is the position. So the vast majority of the direct access um, trades that flow through our business, I would say like 98% are absolutely direct to market. We don't intervene in any way. And we're talking to the market and back in four milliseconds. But that small percentage has to go through that, you know, that human check. Well, from an active trader perspective, the time that it would take for human eyes to look at it and make a decision, the opportunity can be gone. Yeah. And these are not the kind of clients you want to piss off. Yeah. Right? These are very valuable um, you know, uh, trading clients. And so we, uh, we trained the AI. Um, it's, it's, we've been at it for well over nine months. And we have been systematically training it up such that it can be sitting in production alongside our traditional tools. And it is at the point right now of making recommendations. Right. So it will suggest an approval or a decline. Right. 
and based on that, um, can expedite that decision making. So it can speed up the human's job by giving them a like a warning sign or a. It can give them an, an indication uh, based on do, you know do, all do, of the. Do you know what's driving like its decisions, or is it a black box? We know to a degree. Yes, we right. know because we we're training you set, it. You, we're, set, you set the optimums. Yeah, we're and we're massaging the data, and as we massage, you know, as we massage the data, we we're inadvertently training it, right? So we do, we do know, but there is a point, and this is something I think you only learn when you actually start working with AI, and there is a point where humans don't make consistent decisions. So the different humans who are making the different decisions in different cases, they're all independent brains. And depending on you know their mood of the day, their personal risk appetite, and everything else that may go into their decision-making process can be difficult from human to human. Yeah. When you have very large data sets, that becomes less of an issue because those become kind of outlier cases. But when you're dealing with smaller data sets and you're still trying to train, you actually have to have your trainers working hand in hand with the humans because sometimes two humans would decide differently on the exact same situation. So what would you need to believe for you to have the confidence to let the AI have direct control? There's a number of things that need to be in place, particularly for such an important function like risk. Uh, The first one is what's the percentage of accuracy and a really good understanding of when, of of what the differential is. That's the first thing. The second thing is actually having the operational people be comfortable. They have to, just like, just like when you sit in a self-driving car and you're going to let the car drive, you know, you actually have to be comfortable and confident that it's going to do um, a good job. And so there's a period of time of them seeing it in action and believing uh, that, you know, that, it, that they can trust it. Uh, then there's the whole compliance aspect. So you've got to get the compliance people to to believe as well and to be supportive. There um, needs to be something that's it, auditable, right? You certainly need to you certainly need to understand um, what it what it is doing, and uh, and be able to you know look at it after the fact and say you know like a sanity check, like yes, yeah. I agree with that decision. There's interesting parallel actually with with, um, with you know, Google using DeepMind for their data centers. Uh, they they were initially using it to generate recommendations for the you know for the cooling and the thermodynamics and yeah, yeah. there were human operators that were then taking suggestions and then uh, I think last year for the first time they gave the AIs direct control yeah. over the thermal management and the the reason why they felt comfortable doing that was that they'd spent several years developing safety protocols yes exactly uh, where the yeah. operators actually designed the AIs operating framework. So that they've now felt comfortable. That's right. Handing, That's right. Handing it over. And I think it's really important as businesses enter this space to think about all of that because it's very emergent technology. There's a lot of, of tremendous potential. Um, there's also a lot of hype and there's a lot of myths, you know, yeah. relating to you know what AI and what AI is not, um, and it's expensive. Well, you so applying it to the right business case and recognizing there is a high degree of failure that it may not deliver anything yeah. other than learnings for your organization. And this is why I think it's really important in this day and age for um, for CIOs to place as much value on learning and capability as they do on direct outcomes. You know, it's not just in the back office operations uh, where you guys are doing some interesting things. It's also on the front end customer experience. And I'm thinking in particular of the 
the Quest Wealth uh, program or product that you, you've developed, where you've got high levels of automation combined with human expertise. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So we launched Quest Wealth on top of the have, having the brokerage, and you know the brokerage is is really the powerhouse of of Questrade. Um, that's where you know we've got the the whole security master universe. We've got the data flows of all the market data. We've got the order processing engine, all the pass out to the exchanges. So that really is the the powerhouse of Questrade. The way Quest Wealth works is we have a advisory team, humans, that um, you know analyze uh, analyze all of the data that's required to make good portfolio decisions, and they make those decisions in their creation of a series of portfolios and then they ongoing basis are constantly scanning and updating and managing those portfolios. So it's like, a, it's like an active fund? It's like a model, yeah. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a combination of ETFs and, and it is a, a portfolio. But they don't have um, any view to who is necessarily going to be in those, those funds. So all their job is, the advi- that kind of um, portfolio management group, their job is to manage those portfolios and tune them to risk profiles. Hmm. Separately than that will be another human function, which is portfolio, the actual kind of um, portfolio managers, whose job it is is to make sure that an individual's risk profile and goals and all the things that go into KYC are properly aligned with the portfolio that they are assigned to. Right. Okay. And then um, the rest is a trading engine. So underneath that, you know, the money flows in and the system automatically determines, well, if you've got this much money, then I can buy this much of each ETF in order to perfectly model um, that portfolio. And then it just automatically sends out all of the buys and sells out to the market to purchase all of those assets, place them in the account, and it just rebalances every time there's a change. So it's a robo-advisor only really to the extent that it's matching your risk profile with a particular product and then executing it. That's right. That's right. And what's nice from from the customer's perspective is they don't need to do anything. They're getting autom- like very actively managed portfolios yes. that, you know, in previous days at, a, at, only a, been at a very low cost. Very low. Like this would have only been available to um, people with huge amounts of assets, right? So they're getting an actively managed portfolio that um, is tailored to their goals, their risk profile. With tax harvesting, you know, with harvesting, like, like can it actually take into account all of your tax, individual tax? It doesn't have all, it doesn't have all of the individual tax uh, stuff built into it now, but we are exploring how to add more of that in. Right. And essentially what it can do then is anytime there is a change in that portfolio, it just automatically rebalances. So it goes, it sells some, it buys some, and it just keeps it all there. And all of that is happening by the trading system. So it's an intelligence uh, automation layer that sits on top of the brokerage, um, fueled by some human decision making. What are the human activities or people that that essentially doesn't require anymore? Like if you you were doing a a kind of a more expensive um, wealth management function. So the traditional model that we were essentially digitizing would have been uh, you know, you would go in physically into a branch, you would sit down with an advisor, uh, they would walk you through a questionnaire of sorts to do the same thing, which is what is your risk tolerance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then they would essentially sell you what, uh, whatever the, 
bank or overarching entity had kind of you know mandated as like some of the right things to to sell in this case uh, and then they would go separately and on an individual by individual basis execute those those trades and then essentially you know um, from mo- the majority of, of, of customers nothing would happen in that account to rebalance it for some time now if you were privileged enough to be sitting on a large asset class um, or asset set, then you know, then you might have more individualized attention. You might have somebody that's actively managing that. But again, it's on a one-to-one basis. Right. This is one-to-many, and because it's one-to-many, and because uh, there there was so much intelligence and automation in play, um, it makes it it democratizes wealth management. It makes it accessible to to the average Canadian, um, and that and that is a hugely important thing, uh, especially in Canada where we. We have quite a lot of debt, and we have uh, an aging population, and you know, people's money is their quality of life. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds. Mm-hmm.